Welcome to the podcast where we clear up common misconceptions in biology and evolution. And learn that all the answers to evolution's mysteries are simple in the way that everything is astoundingly complicated. Welcome to Darwin's Black Book. Welcome back to Darwin's Black Book. My name is Tom Land, a zoologist from the University of Southampton. And I'm Becca, a PhD researcher from the University of Exeter. Hope you enjoyed the first episode in which we talked about the history and general background on the theory of evolution. This episode, we're going to be talking about something slightly more specific in the way that we're going to be talking about extreme living and extreme environments. Absolutely. So lots of living things have evolved to live in extreme environments. And this is basically anywhere that you can imagine that you might think it's difficult for a living thing to be able to survive in. So the actual official definition of extreme environment is as follows. An extreme environment is a habitat that is considered very hard to survive in due to its considerably extreme conditions such as temperature, accessibility to different energy sources. So can it eat? Okay, can it get energy? Or under high pressure. And if it's a microorganism, like a bacteria or something, you can call them an extremophile. And we basically just call them that because they they live in what we consider to be extreme conditions. Not as extreme conditions as in it's kind of cold and we'd need a coat, but these are conditions that would kill us exceptionally quickly, as in the pH so low that the acid would burn flesh off bone or so hot that you'd die painfully. Things, or, or no oxygen, again, that you'd die. Mostly the environments in which people would die at the end of it. Yes, yeah, so some examples of that if we're going to be talking about things freezing. Some spiders and insects can produce this protein called antifreeze that just stops them from freezing solid. So they can live in like ridiculously cold conditions. For example, they found a larvae of um, an arctic fly that could survive to minus 76 Fahrenheit, which is real cold. We wouldn't be able to survive that. Which comes in at about minus 60 degrees Celsius. But there are some animals that actually do freeze. They don't produce antifreeze everywhere. So there are some species of frogs, newts and turtles that actually can control which part of their bodies freeze. So at any given time when it's cold, more than 50% of the water in their bodies may actually be ice and they can survive that and then just come back to living normally. So the issue with freezing in an animal is when water freezes it expands and therefore all of your cells effectively will just burst open which is not entirely conducive to living uh, because you have no cells that work so what these animals are actually doing they are controlling at what time and in what area these cells will freeze so they take about out a little bit of water from their cells make sure that they freeze all at once so it doesn't freeze slowly and cells burst and immense amounts of damage are caused but it's very very quickly done it's very very controlled which means they can kind of switch between frozen and unfrozen and survive the process which is useful and entirely the point of doing it uh additionally in antarctica there's a type of molly a tiny little fish which has a huge amount of antifreeze in its blood as well enabling them to basically feed off algae which grows off the bottom of icebergs and off ice flows and grit in the water which is pretty incredible 
But extreme living can also be seen in, in plants. It's not just animals. So one example that just keeps coming up is uh, copper contamination. So where they dump material from mining sites or from agriculture. There are some plants that can actually live in these contaminated areas. They've evolved that. And now they're looking into, well, I think they're actually doing it. They have some, some crops, like some wheats or some rice, that can live in these high copper soils. Therefore, you're getting, kind of reclaiming land from what was once really quite toxic and full of heavy metals and, and toxins. You can now grow that and use that. And it's not being wasted um, from, from the immense amounts of pollution. But in terms about how, how what things are actually going wrong, Becca, denaturing. So denaturing, it doesn't occur in, in all types of extreme environments, but in, in some of them, particularly heat. Denaturing is where you have, for example, some, your DNA or your proteins and the extreme environment makes it change shape and it either completely stops working or it takes on a new function that you really don't want it to have. So the proteins that Becca's mentioning, they, every protein in your body, its entire function is down to what shape it is and how it interacts with other molecules based upon its shape. If it no longer has that shape, it no longer works. Looking at extremophiles and extreme living, you're studying the limits of life. What is the most extreme environment that life on this planet can withstand? So at the end of the episode, we'll be putting forward our, our favourite most extreme organism that uh, Becca and I could both find. For you at home, to vote on your favourite. Yes, and we have vetoed two species um, because we're talking about them a lot in the episode. And we love them so much. <laughs> yes, so we're not allowed to choose, choose two species. Tardigrades and nematodes. So the first section that we're going to talk about in extreme living is, well, it's not on Earth at all, actually. Space. Outer space. Where no one can hear you scream. Space is certainly an extreme environment. So if you tuned in last time, you might remember that I spoke about the organism that I look at in a lab, microscopic nematode worms. Um, a few years ago, well, more than a few years ago now, they um, they survived a really messy space shuttle re-entry to Earth. And that's pretty amazing because in space there is quite a lot of radiation, clearly no breathable oxygen. And, and then when you're talking about re-entering Earth, so re-entering our atmosphere, that's a new extreme environment into itself because you're rapidly changing pressure and you're going at really high speeds and it can get really, really hot. Basically, space almost impossible to live in and re-entry even more so. Um, we talk about re-entry because in 2003, there was a space shuttle Columbia mission, the STS-107. This is one of the tragedies of modern space travel. So on February the 1st, 2003, after a 16-day science expedition, a hole was punctured in the wing of the space shuttle Columbia as it was re-entering Earth's atmosphere. The insulation foam peeled off and... Well, re-entry basically means immense amounts of heat as, as the space shuttle is hitting against air particles in, in the atmosphere. The hole in the side of the wing meant hot gases shot into the wings and the heat shielding um, of the space shuttle into the, comp um, into the fuel tanks, which were basically held in the wings, which meant the compromise of the fuel tanks. And unfortunately, according to the official investigation report, of this incident, there were five, basically five fatal incidents which occurred. There was depressurization, which kind of speaks for itself. And there's the off-nominal dynamic G environment, quoting them, which effectively just means high G forces. So blood-starved brain, blood vessels bursting, 
Then comes the separation of the crew members from the crew module and the seats, which is exactly what it sounds separation. like. Separation. <laughs> sounds gentle. <laughs> yes, they are thrown from as the crew members were thrown from the spaceship while traveling at extraordinary speeds while re-entering atmosphere. Before was exposure to high speed and high altitude, and then ground impact, which kind of speaks for itself. And the names of the crewmen on board are Rick Husband, William McCall, Michael Anderson, David Brown, Kalpana Chowler, Laurel Clark, and Ian Raymond. And it, it was very sorry for their families. It was a, hor a horrible lesson for the space industry to, um, to learn. Um, but in all of the destruction and chaos which then followed, the science experiments on board, the 50 science experiments, which actually held quite a lot of nematodes in these big flasks, Although the results of the experiments were lost in the re-entry process, it did show something else. There was light, uh, a sliver of light in the darkness. So the nematodes in question are, well, Becca's basically mortal enemy. Uh, say, you know, habditus elegans, C. elegans. I'm mortal <laughs> enemy, they're just not as good as the nematodes, are you? <laughs> so, yeah, Becca's using a completely different species and she has often slagged off C. No elegans. I have not, I just... <laughs> think there are other directions to take other than the elegance sometimes Touch. sorry carry on touchy subject touchy <laughs> subject <laughs> um so these nematodes were in a big basically a big flask object that you might store i don't know thermos you might store thermos a big, a big <laughs> thermos of worms a big old thermos flask effectively big old thermos of worms um not built for re-entry into atmosphere but survive it did the locker split open the thermos went flying and what the, these nematodes re-entering after all of those extreme g environments after the heat and the pressure and, and all of that and the massive impact of hitting earth they all well the majority of these worms actually survived which i think is absolutely incredible but yeah, the worm's offspring housed at the C. elegans Genetic Center in the University of Minnesota. I did quite like this fact. Um, some of them, well, they still survive. They're still bred. And May 2011, what, nearly eight years later, on the space shuttle Endeavour, they were put on board on the Endeavour's last, last flight and experimented on a pot in space as well. So they, yeah, they went back to space again, which was, which was quite touching. Um, yeah. But yeah, there is the history. But how do the adaptations of the worms play a part in their survival? So nematodes are really good at adapting to extreme environments in, in general, really. The first one is, is quite unusual. It's a type of developmental dormancy or kind of like a, a detour in their development. So normally they just go from like stage one, two, three, four, adult. Um, but they can skip one of these stages, stage three, and then take three months out and kind of on a, arrest their development. Kind of on a nematode gap year. Gap three months, <laughs> yep. <laughs> and they can do this when it gets into a really, when they're in a really bad environment. So if there's too many other worms around, so too much competition, or there's not enough food, or it's too salty, then they can just go into this kind of pause developmental state called dawa, and they can just stay like that until their environment gets better, and then they can resume their development and grow into an adult. So that's really cool. They could have done that. So just going, they're kind of putting their whole development on hold in order just to just to wait, uh, wait until the conditions get better. Yes, and they also their um, their cuticles, they're kind of like their skin, um, gets thicker and much more protective than it would normally if they were going through normal development. 
And bear in mind their, their lifespan's normally only a couple of weeks. The fact that they can do this for around three months in some species is, is pretty impressive. But it's like you getting to the age of 10, not liking your environment in which you're in. I don't know, school sucks for a bit. Too many brothers or sisters or something. (laughs) Too many brothers and sisters, school sucks. You don't like summer, so you just pause yourself for, what, four times your entire lifespan and then come back (laughs) as a 10-year-old some 200 years in the future to go, right, time to return back to her when conditions are better. And they can also undergo another dormant state called anhydrobiosis, which is basically where it becomes completely dehydrated, so it reduces its metabolism, so how quickly it breaks down its food. Yeah, and then it can survive in that way instead. Which is really interesting you should bring that up in terms of nematodes, because anhydro... I am having trouble saying that. Anhydrobiosis is quite a common way for organisms to buckle down for the hard times. You've got bacteria that kind of form crispy shells i have heard them described to me they shrink down to a tenth of their size evacuate all the water basically just stay like that until conditions get better uh, we've got tardigrades water bears will chat well i'm gonna chat about them extensively in a minute they also do something very very similar they just evacuate all of the water and wait for a better conditions to come along basically so in terms of evolution they're really really helpful to have evolved And some scientists are even saying that when you look at the terrestrial, so land-living nematodes on Earth, quite a lot of them are probably going to be in these arrested states. Again, going back to the the basis of evolution, you're pausing yourself so you and your genes can wait until a better environment and pass on your genes. You have a more likelihood of of surviving and passing your genes on in a better environment. Yeah, and you can can have your, your children, your offspring, in that better environment so it's better. For them as well. And they survive as well, and you've passed on your genes, and evolution is at work. (laughs) (laughs) The process of evolution is happy. Don't personify (laughs) processes in biology. So that's dealing with space kind of to an extent in nematodes. There's a lot of bacteria as well which have been seen to survive extraordinarily well in space. So the specific mission I'm actually talking about is when NASA sent up the Viking missions to Mars. Now, when one of the Viking missions got back, I can't remember which one, I do apologise, got back to Earth, they analysed the soil samples and they also analysed the entirety of the legs and the landing gear and, and, and all of those bits for debris and they found on the landing one of the landing arms of this Viking lander, they found bacteria. Live bacteria sitting on the landers. Now, what they surmised to happen, they actually managed to trace it down. It was where someone had sneezed on the lander before takeoff. So on Earth, and then it'd gone to space and come back, and they were still there. On Earth. And it, yep. Yep, and it had gone through the atmosphere again, so it survived the trip, three-month trip to Mars, it survived on Mars, and then it had survived takeoff again, and then survived the trip back again, and then survived being re-entered, re-entered into Earth again. So if that tells you about potential interplanetary transport wow. of microorganisms, it's pretty good evidence. That's that. Do you know what kind of bacteria it was? That's... Sneeze bacteria. Yeah, the classic species <laughs> bacteria. That species. I, I can't confirm which one it was. I'm very sorry. Um, <laughs> Good enough for me. So one of the other bits about space which 
is bad and not conducive to life is the immense amounts of radiation. Radiation is bad as it affects the structure of your DNA to such an extent that immense amounts of mutations happen, your DNA breaks down, and then you stop functioning, your cells stop dividing and growing. That is, well, radiation poisoning and an exceptionally painful death. Another version of that is one that can affect your germline. So it doesn't really look like it affects you personally, but you can have children that, that have mutations. Exactly. Yeah, I, I do keep... I apologise for bringing out gruesome deaths, but at the same time, <laughs> extreme environments tend to do that to people. Uh, so, right, what examples have we got for this one? So, radiation can occur both in space and on Earth. And like you said, it can mutate your DNA, um, of course, cause cancer and congenital defects in your offspring. So UV on Earth, it is massively lessened by... The impact is massively lessened by our atmosphere, but out in space there's nothing to stop the radiation. And just a side note, that just reminded me, if you've seen the, the t TV series called The 100... I have um, not. Well, at the beginning <laughs> of it, there's a population of humans that live on basically a version of the International Space Station and other space stations all connected together. Mm -hmm. And these people basically evolved to become resistant to radiation in space, but they don't really know it. And then when they come back down to Earth, they can survive there quite quite nicely. But there are some people there that have to live in the mountains because they can't um, go outside because they haven't adapted to this new radiation. That's not a real-life example, that's fictional, but it's the same kind of process. <laughs> right, yeah, but how, how realistic <laughs> is that as an example? Could that happen? Could we evolve radiation protection somehow? I don't know, because these people had been living in space for a few generations in this fictional example i'm going to keep saying fictional to, <laughs> to drill Hammer that in. In. it is but not real a, um, a real example is i'm all up for the real examples <laughs> like a short-term adaptation so i was reading the latest issue of um the niche by the british ecological society and this was the well it was the march 2020 edition and i was reading it and i thought hmm there's some research in here that might be useful for our extreme living episode and they were basically wrote a little article about some research that had been done about bees in Chernobyl, um, which, if you don't know, was... Is Where have an you area... been living if you don't know what Chernobyl is? Okay. Under which rock? <laughs> Huge <laughs> amounts of radiation there caused by humans and... The worst nuclear incident, man-made incident ever. Yes. As a nuclear power plant went into meltdown. It's very very interesting place though because nature is starting to recover there now people aren't living there and um anyway these bees um they found that they had really kind of upped their metabolism so how quickly they break down food and that's helped them survive in the radiation so they had to eat more but they were able to survive in this place where not not that much was living anymore and nature is taking over there again so even though there's still reasonable levels of radiation there immense amounts of radiation reasonable to these animals we're going to kill so everything outright short-term adaptations in plants and animals that, that live there again no absolutely the trees are definitely coming back the blackbirds which have seen to have been making nests again actually having babies in these zones the deer are returning as well the wolves are slowly coming back i can't say for sure uh, what the population is doing there but it's a really interesting example nothing like this has ever happened 
in human history to have an example of what immense amounts of radiation does to nature is really interesting really interesting case study on the topic of radiation there's actually some work being done by another phd student at my university who's again to bring back the nematodes they're using nematodes um to look at radiation so they've built this um machine that has a little pod in the middle and they basically fire loads of radiation at the worms and see how it affects their aging which is very interesting yes actually they've done that with some bacteria as well and the oh, results have been quite extraordinary bringing it back to space <laughs> we need to start talking about space right after talking about both space and radiation i want to touch upon space bacteria i'm getting quite a lot of the information from this bit uh, from a really cool book called the origin of life by paul davis highly recommend reading it if you're interested in this stuff it, it kind of covers all sorts um on on survival in extreme environments including from our earth and also in space as well anyway the idea i want to talk about is called panspermia which is a less uh, accepted um way of how earth might have got life basically panspermia means life everywhere well saying here it wasn't life didn't originate on earth it was seeded here through an asteroid strike or something similar and to test how realistic this theory might have been they were looking at bacteria bacteria when they are starved of oxygen and nutrients and water shrivel into a husk which is very very hardy can survive impact heat no oxygen they're just staying there indefinitely they we, we actually don't know if they have a a deadline uh, a wake-up clock say so if you don't wake up by this time they they will never wake up but anyway you put water on them they puff back up to 10 times their husky size and they continue being bacteria pootling around um basically they're ugly sleeping beauties as the quote from the book says which <laughs> I, I quite liked i like that <laughs> but it really is radiation being a, a massive issue dna being broken down as we previously stated probably means you're going to die but radiation cannot penetrate rock. And if a piece of ice, for example, on a separate planet, a separate planetary body, were to contain some frozen bits of bacteria, again, immense amounts of cold, it would have gone into its shriveled husk state, but it is within a body of water, a ice. If a collision happens with said planetary body, that piece of ice is rocketed off the planet passing through space it's going to pick up debris it's going to pick up other bits of rock going to pick up other bits of ice and it's going to build up layers of rock and ice and dust and the bacteria if it can survive that is going to be okay and we've seen that it can survive no oxygen and we can see it most there are some examples which can survive immense amounts of radiation like obscenely large amounts um as in you'll get really close to the sun and still be completely fine. So they can survive for millions of years and no water, lots of lethal radiation and immense cold. Minus 50 degrees centigrade on a good day. But bacteria are routinely stored at much lower levels um, in lab freezers, which would... I keep mine at minus 80. Bacteria or worms? Bacteria. It's mental. I did not know that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's That's cold. That's... I worked with um, transgenic bacteria last year, and when you go down to the minus 80 freezers, they have a special room for it. You open the door, and all this kind of like, 
I see smoke comes out. Is there a, mm. is there a hiss as you open the doors? There is a hiss. Oh, You've got to put on that's, special gloves. <laughs> that's very science fiction. I really like that. <laughs> Damn, I want to go and visit those freezers. So, if anything... We've <laughs> got some in Southampton as well. I think most universities have them. I'm going to go digging. Um, go digging for them. But yeah, if anything, would you suggest that maybe that would preserve them better, if anything? Yeah, this was kind of why we were trying to do it. So, I would be keeping this bacteria because I changed their DNA slightly and I wanted to keep it for further experiments in the future that I don't have time to do right now or if someone else wanted to use them in the future. So we'd um, put them in some little tiny tubes and stick them in the minus 80 kind of indefinitely. And they can just say that until they're woken up again, yeah, which is ready. the point. So if it's got the <laughs> preserving minus, minus many degrees centigrade and you've got your your rock protecting you from any radiation you can travel through an interstellar environment fairly easily i mean it would be bad but not as bad as you first thought um the next bit is the difficult bit which is the re-entry as we've already discovered before re-entry is a slightly difficult business should anything go wrong you might explode and it's the same for rocks if you remember a few years ago when there was the asteroid meteorite it's a meteorite uh heading off over russia it exploded mid-re-entry that is because it was probably going at quite a shallow angle it got very very hot and the pressure with the steam building up from the ice melting very very rapidly just exploded and if you're a tiny bacteria sitting in some ice and rock what you really really want is to come in at a shallow angle you want to be in a rock between one and ten meters wide and you want to explode you this is to. you want to explode because then you've got lots of smaller bits traveling much slower than one big bit traveling very very quickly yeah you're kind of sailing through the atmosphere at a much slower speed you hit the ground slower should you come across i don't know water like from rain or a hot spring or anything like that then suddenly life is seeded on a new planet that is the theory of panspermia that some scientists believe that Mars could have been the location for which life originated on Earth. Anyway, we should probably stop. I will now stop talking about space, I promise. Uh, <laughs> Come back down to Earth. <laughs> back to Earth. Other extreme environments. Um, oh, there is one. There, I was, you see, right. I was going to talk about the deep sea and the pressures of the deep sea and what you have to deal with down there, but I got sidetracked and it was really cool. And there's so much amazing stuff down there. We just have no idea exists. Again, we've only measured about 0.1% of, of the ocean depths. So I'm going to save that to a different episode. A whole episode on the pressures of the deep sea. Becca, what have we got for other extreme environments? So yes, back on Earth, um, I want to talk about Yellowstone National Park and the hot springs and geysers they have there, but this can occur in all, all hot springs and geysers really. Um, so basically, like like the name implies, they, they are hot and they are often not normally the same pH as normal water, which makes it quite difficult to live in. So it's an extreme more environment. Is it more acidic or more alkaline? What did I normally. say? You said just different pH. Oh, alkaline. Oh. They're normally alkali. Basically, it just means higher pH. I don't want to say oh. because only the examples I've looked at are alkali, <laughs> but there might be others. Okay, okay. <laughs> so one one of the extremophiles that can be found there are cyanobacteria. They are single-celled bacteria um, that photosynthesize like, like plants do, and that's how they make their energy. And they kind of clump together. So even though they are single-celled organisms, they kind of bunch together. 
and they like temperatures that are about 30 to 74 degrees C, so it's quite a range, and they like alkaline waters. And when you just look at them, kind of in the hot springs, they look like these mats of green or brown or orange. And interestingly, the oldest known fossils of anything are cyanobacteria, which were found in rocks of Western Australia, and they are 3.5 billion years old. Fully proving that the origin of life did in fact stem from a bacteria-like organism. That makes sense. So as well as that, we know they're actually really important for shaping the course of the ecology of Earth itself and therefore evolution. And this is because they produced oxygen, which completely reformed the planet and allowed allowed things to evolve that we see today. Like we, we breathe in oxygen and without these bacteria that probably well, might not have happened. It was absolutely incredible to think that before this period there was very little atmosphere, very little oxygen entirely. They're probably living off sulfur and methane and completely different elements. They're also a really important part of the nitrogen cycle, if you're interested in the nitrogen cycle. <laughs> If anyone, the nitrogen cycle, that terrified me at school. That just <laughs> terrifying piece of ecology. Um, well, you need it. <laughs> very, very interesting. But they are, yeah, they, they effectively helped develop our atmosphere. Exactly. But when you're looking at these geysers and hot springs, it's not just cyanobacteria found here. There are many other different types as well. Um, and I want to talk about one called that I have practiced saying, but I've hit it. Deinococcus. Is that correct, Tom? Do you know? Deinococcus? Deinococcus. Deinococcus. <laughs> With confidence. Deinococcus. <laughs> hey, first time. Got it. First time. <laughs> and these kind of look like bright red or orange streamers. And I believe I saw some when I was in Yellowstone um, about 10 years ago now. I was going to say, are these the ones? So if you know of the Yellowstone, the hot springs orange, yellow in bands around, uh, around the rim. Potentially, but then that also could have just been bands of cyanobacteria because they can be orange as well. Huh. But yeah, you should look this, this up on Google. They're really pretty. Um, but anyway, I wanted to bring these up because in able to survive, they produce these pigments called carotenoids, which kind of acts as sunscreen. So it protects them from UV, but they also like the heat and they also like the alkalineness of the water. Carotenoids, which are in fact in carrots. Yes, but these these are not carrots. <laughs> these are not carrots. There are not no, carrots uh, in Yellowstone hot springs. It's what gives carrots their orange nature. So it's quite interesting. So in the evolutionary terms, they've evolved to cope with immense amounts of heat, but because they're exposed in these streams constantly, constantly exposed in this heat, they've kind of also evolved a sunscreen for themselves. Pretty much, yes. But there are, like I said, there are even more different types there. So you can have, when you go there, you'll notice the overwhelming smell of rotten egg. And sulfur. this is, yeah, sulfate more specifically. Um, and that's from the green sulfur microbe called chlorobium. And you can also have non-sulfur non versions of that too. The other thing I wanted to mention on a, an animal scale actually is stuff living at immensely high altitude. Now. So any moment above you when you just look up into the sky, beautiful blue summer sky, uh, any moment above you there are anything between two and three billion insects flying above oh. your head. <laughs> I thought <laughs> Sorry, it was going to be something nice. <laughs> uh, well, you know. Um, 
I should just uh, let you know, dear listener, we had an invasion of flying ants um, where I am yesterday, and it it, it wasn't the most fun I've ever had outside in the sun in my life. I had my ant invasion happening literally before we started recording this. I went out with a camera, and it was amazing to see them all come out, but kind of grim after a while while they start crawling around yeah. up your t-shirt. It's interesting and fascinating at first, and then they go on you. And then nature comes to you. Um, so... I don't want to talk about insects right now because, again, insects can do some amazing extreme things and, and the way they survive as well. But the things I want to talk about, something you'd less expect to be so high. Living at the, kind of the same lengths of 33,000 feet is the common crane, which is, yeah, an absolutely beautiful white bird. Something you wouldn't really expect. Yeah, they can get reach up to 10 kilometres high kind of the cruising altitude of a jetliner when you're going on holiday somewhere but there is one that goes even higher it's the rupel's griffin vulture which can reach 11.3 kilometers or something like 37,000 feet which is actually insane they travel at that height because it's it so much less air resistance that'll take you at least 20 minutes to drive <laughs> it depends how fast you're driving yeah well nothing in your way and you're going straight up Anyway, we've got distracted. <laughs> in terms of the common crane, they are travelling that high as well to basically get over the Himalayas. In terms of the Rupal's Griffin Vulture, they just get that high because they don't need a flat march. It's very energy efficient. I keep thinking you're saying Rupal as in Rupal Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> it's R-U-P-P-E-L-L. So with Rupal's Griffin Vulture, these amazing birds have two... No, I need to say that again. They are travelling that high in order so they can they can spot prey from immense distances away. Uh, additionally, they can fly very quickly to said location where there's food. But yeah, they have a 2.6 metre wingspan. They don't need to flap at all. They can just stick the wings out, hover through the thermals, letting them, the thermals carry them into the low areas of low density, uh, low air density really easy to fly they can spot prey from a few miles away and they can smell most most birds can't smell which i learned during researching this and hmm. um, vultures can and they use that sense of smell over this immense distance uh, to i guess they don't need it so much yeah and and well that's interesting with with the vultures they need to find decaying prey because they need to actually get into the carcass carcasses are apparently quite difficult to get into uh, but living at this altitude and back on with the extreme bit living at this altitude you get some issues not so much from radiation this time, unlike the other bits, but from breathing. There is very, very little oxygen up at 37,000 feet. So Everest is about 29,000 feet and you need assisted oxygen to get up there for most people at least. But at 37,000 feet is, is like the equivalent of sticking your head out of an airliner. Seeing how that fares, don't, please don't try this. Um, at all. Can you try this at home? Please. <laughs> or on an airplane. You yes. haven't evolved for um, this. <laughs> you haven't evolved for this. <laughs> so, birds are exceptionally interesting in the fact that they have air sacs. Basically, they have air sacs around their body, which, which, unlike human lungs, we breathe in, absorb oxygen, and then we breathe out again. Birds are very interesting. When they breathe in, they're absorbing oxygen, and when they're breathing out, they also absorb oxygen on on both counts and where we have to consciously breathe in which is very very difficult when for example i know you're running or something like that you're 
gasping for breath. With birds, every time they flap their wings, it expands their air sacs and contracts their air sacs. So it's forcing oxygen in and forcing oxygen out, meaning they basically they're, they're forced to absorb oxygen wherever they are and and because of the size of these air sacs inside the body of these this vulture and the crane as well they can absorb a heck of a lot of oxygen enabling them to basically function that high and also they're not using any oxygen again as i said they're not flapping um so these adaptations have enabled them to occupy well ridiculously high in the sky to to locate their food and also to migrate effectively which i think is pretty cool other than aeroplanes is there anything else living up there? I mean, I'm, there are, of course, bacteria. You know, there are, of course, microbes in, in clouds, but anything macro? Or is it Denise just for them? Apart from the insects which join them. Of course, how could I forget? So spiders have quite a cool little tendency. I would say also an extreme environment in which they do something called... Pro they, they, they balloon. They produce tiny little gossamer silk from their uh, spinnerets. And through electric currents and going literally with the wind, they are swept up by this piece of silk. They are quite capably allowing them to fly into such an extreme environment as the, well, the, the high atmosphere. And they can travel... Kind of like paragliding. Exactly like that. And they can travel hundreds of kilometres like this, which is somewhat ter somewhat terrifying. Uh, but in this exceptional extreme environment of really, really high altitude. So... Onwards some more from the high-flying birds to the literal sewer-eating, concrete-dissolving bacteria, nightmarish as though it sounds. In... <laughs> you see, we... Right, that's the thing with biology, because we talk about this stuff quite a lot. We study them, I'm reading them, I'm thinking, this is super cool. And then a normal person comes along and goes, what are you, what are you talking about? What are you reading about? This stuff is terrifying. <laughs> but we don't see it as that. We want to we wanna spread the love for some of these underrepresented and really quite cool uh, organisms. Be it small and bacteria or big and bird-like. So, in the late 1920s, there was an incident that happened in Cairo in which some of their main drains and sewers started collapsing. This then was followed quite shortly afterwards by Orange County in California. 26 miles of their drains collapsed. Los Angeles lost 55 miles of their sewer systems. Melbourne, Cape Town, massive concrete underground structures and tunnels started collapsing all over the world, which was somewhat curious to the people who tried to build cities and then it began collapsing. They were being eaten at a rate of about a quarter of an inch per year, which is substantial, to say the least, and no one could find the cause. Now, when they went down there, they awful, awful smell of, of hydrogen sulfide. Again, what Beck was saying earlier about that smell of... Eggy smell. Eggy smell. Rotten eggs. Really quite awful. And what they, and what they discovered was the concrete was turning into jelly. And this kind of gel-like putty-ish substance. And they'd yet to figure out what was what was causing this. Was it a chemical reaction? And it was a chem chemical react and it was a chemical reaction, but caused by a tiny little bacteria called Thiobacillus concretivorus. The concrete eating Concretivorus. <laughs> oh my god. Which gosh. basically translates to the concrete eating sulfur rod, because they looked at the putty being produced of this concrete, and it was it was tiny little rods just eating concrete. Well, what was actually happening? The Thiobacillus concretivorus 
about two micrometers in, in, in length, they were extracting sulfur from the hydrogen sulfide in the sewer air produced by different bacteria breaking down sewage. They were breaking, they were absorbing the sulfur, loving it, and then as a byproduct of that metabolic reaction, they were secreting sulfuric acid, exceptionally strong pH 2 stuff, way, way stronger than bleach, um, stuff that will cause serious, serious burns. Um, but they were secreting sulfuric acid just onto the concrete, which was turning the concrete walls into putty. And when in the lab they tried growing these bacteria in various different conditions and they would not grow, they literally refused to grow out of sulfuric acid. I think, if anything, deserves the, the name of, of extremophile. That does. Very specific as well. It can only, only survive in that. Literally only in that, which, which is absolutely mental. But yeah, there you go. They have, <laughs> since then, they have put measures in place to stop the bacteria from growing or to minimise the putty-making skills of the bacteria. I want to mention tardigrades just a bit because I think they do deserve so much detail as, as to how they have evolved to absolute extreme environments. Unlike the sulfur bacteria, which I mentioned previously, which have specifically had a pressure on them to develop to a really, really hydrogen sulfide rich atmosphere. Things like the tardigrades and the bacteria that live in space, they haven't specifically evolved to live in space. That is a, a side effect of the extreme environments which they live on Earth. Um, and then they've, it's, it's, a byproduct is that they can also survive in space. And that's one of the things with tardigrades. They evolved on Earth very much so about 600 million years ago. Uh, Eight-legged little, little, little they tiny are bears, absolutely adorable. Tiny little water bears or moss piglets is my favourite one. Yeah, they can survive for up to 30 years with no food or water. They've survived ionising radiation in space. They've survived absolute zero, what, minus 273 degrees centigrade, well above boiling. Pressure's six times that of the deep sea, so about... It's about a thousand atmospheres at the bottom of the deep sea. They've evolved to live in the extreme environments of an early Earth, where there was very little oxygen at times, there was immense amounts of heat. Uh, but about 600 million years ago, when animals started really developing, an example of this Israeli spacecraft Bereshit last year in April 2019. Well, that made the news. That made the news when it crashed into the moon. They were carrying quite a lot of tardigrades on board to do some uh, experiments on. The UN actually suggested that they should go and retrieve said tardigrades. Yeah, because they basically colonised the moon. By accident. <laughs> That's a mistake not, to make. No, this wasn't a manned mission. This was a purely robotic mission. Colonised with just... tardigrades. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Did they ever they, go uh... and, um, and get them back? They you... haven't, as of yet, They're gone still up there and right got now. there. Yeah, but they don't know if they survived. They did some more tests and all the equipment is, of course, not working because they crashed into the moon. So they don't know if they survived or not. Oh my gosh. So there could be living things hanging out on the moon right now. <laughs> Next time you look at the moon, just remember the tardigrades are waving back. So uh, tiny, tiny little water bears. Think of the little water bears. But these are absolutely fantastic little animals. I am hoping, yeah, we, we absolutely need to do a full episode on these at some other point. Well, that is roughly all we have time for this episode in terms of examples, which brings us to... Animal of the episode! So, last week's Woo. animal of the episode was between the marine iguana Woo. and the medium tree finch. Boo. They're both great, and they're both <laughs> endemic to the Galapagos Island. So we put the vote to Twitter, and the community has chosen... I don't know the results, just bearing in mind, so this is... Is it Tom's marine iguana, or is it my medium tree finch? And the winner is, with 
Come on. The marine iguana. <laughs> Congratulations. <In your> face. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there you have it, folks. It is the marine iguana is by far just the better animal. No, the more popular animal. <laughs> They're both wonderful. <laughs> So there are loads more extremophiles and extreme living things that we haven't covered because there are loads and you can read lots about them. So we've each found one that we thought was particularly cool just to finish off with. And this is going- And as usual, it is a competition. Yeah, this is going to be our, our Twitter poll. So as soon as we upload this episode, we're then going to release a poll on Twitter and you can vote for your favorite extremophile. So I would like to talk about a shrimp. Shrinkacarus lyricolos, and it's a thermotolerant shrimp. Now this is really cool because, because some scientists went to a hydrothermal field just off the coast of Japan, and they found that there were two different types of shrimp that lived in different places within the vents. So some lived kind of happily on the outside, so they would kind of hang out with the animals that lived out there. Um, and then Shrinkacarus could live in the middle, which is much more extreme but it likes it there because it can access the the fluid that's coming out and it has a thermal preference because it's so so hot in the middle up to 400 degrees centigrade in some examples so it's absolutely insanely hot so a study from earlier this year in january 2020 um looked at the dna of the shrimp that lives kind of on the periphery of this vent and shinkacaris which lives in the middle and they looked at how the genes are acting as well as what they actually were. And it could tell us how Shinkakaris has adapted to this really tough niche, this microhabitat in the middle of this really hot vent. And they found that this shrimp produces so much more protein and a molecule that we already know is responsible for thermotolerance, but in yeast, so not related to shrimp at all. And they also have a really, really good immune system. So all genes are related to proteins, immunity and protecting them were either expressed way more than you would expect or natural selection was acting positively on them and helping them adapt to this really, really hot environment. And I looked for a picture of them online and they're really hard to get an image of because they're found so deep. But I did manage to find one and I'll upload that to the Twitter poll. So that's going to be hard to beat. And again, we kind of didn't do deep sea environment because it kind of it really does deserve an episode all on its own, which is weird because I have also done deep sea. <laughs> I've also done a deep sea animal. Um, I should point out as well the two animals that we have actually vetoed for this is the nematode and the tardigrade yes. because we both They're love them good. so much. Yeah. So the one I am, so the one I'm going to talk about is the furry lobster or the yeti crab, uh, Latin being kiwa hasuta. It's a squat lob it is a squat lobster, meaning it is closely related to the true crabs rather than the lobsters, but they are it is not a lobster no furry lobsters a crab. So it's not a lobster. The furry <laughs> kind lobster of a is not a lobster. What's lobster, which isn't really a true okay. lobster. <laughs> Thanks, science. So yeah, they are about fifteen centimetres long. They have these big long claws covered in kind of furry like appendages, hence the name for Yeti crab, because they look all furry and white and fluffy. Uh, they live at an average about 2,000 metres in depth from everywhere from the Pacific Ocean, Atlantic Ocean, Southern Ocean in Antarctica, the f amazing animals that live in the vents down there, and as well as the Indian Ocean. They also live anywhere from 1,500 to uh, 3,000 metres. Um, yeah, living at about 200 atmospheres, which is insane. So why I think these guys are so, so cool is 
the hairy hairiness in inverted commas for projections off their claws and it's the perfect environment for uh, sulfur loving and ba- methane loving bacteria to thrive in and these guys live around the hydrothermal vents the big black smokers that get to about 380 to 400 degrees centigrade or the ones that are slight the white smokers which are slightly uh lower in temperature very very alkaline and what they do, they kind of live in a ring around them in the perfect temperature where there's a lot of, 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 of sulfur and methane. The bacteria live off the hydrogen sulfide and the crabs, as those colonies grow on their furry arms, they feed off the colonies which grow on their arms in their own little kind of garden. The older ones, it's, it's quite pretty, actually. They do look like they've got little beards. They're almost druidic in nature, wandering around these vents. But it, it's fantastic. They kind of the closer they get to the vent, the hotter it is. So only the larger crabs can survive. But then there's more methane and more sulfur uh, for these bacteria to grow in. Therefore, there's more food. Uh, they fight. They stray too close and might get burned uh, or inundated with sulfur and uh, inundated with sulfur and and asphyxiate. So they really do live on this knife edge of a ring, this Goldilocks zone. They are one. Of, yeah, they're just, uh, an iconic species which live around these vents and by far one of the best extreme animals i think that live on Earth. one of the other one being shinkaris well that's for the listeners to decide so the paper i was referring to earlier about the shinkaris shrimp was by zuatal 2020 in plus one and it was called insights into the strategy of microenvironmental adaptation fantastic so we come with references as well with that good we do uh so there you go vote which one you prefer the fairy lobster which isn't a lobster and the <laughs> amazing japanese deep sea shrimp so that is all we have got for you this episode becca where can we be found on social media on twitter at darwin black book or use the hashtag hashtag dbb uh going to try and get an episode out every two weeks if this is your first one or thereabouts as we've both got research on you can find me if you want any more information on some of the work that i'm doing at thomasland.co.uk and a huge thank you to the british ecological society for funding the startup of this podcast you can find out more about them and join their society at british ecological society.org and they also produce that magazine that i referred to earlier about the bees and their metabolism called the niche and if you're a member you can get that magazine too and also a huge thank you to Tom's friend Ed, who designed the Darwin head on our logo. And that is all, just to leave you from a quote from the Universe Life series. The tenacity of life here on Earth's most extreme environments encourages many biologists to believe that life may be remarkably widespread throughout the universe. What a thought that would be. Thank you so much for listening. See you in the next episode. Goodbye. <laughs>